My name's Kimberly Hernandez. Oh, and um, I've had the joy of knowing John and Adrian since I was 19, and I'm very grateful for that. And um, <clears throat> did ministry many years and met my husband at the church that we were all a part of previously, so I'm grateful. I came to First Church in September of 2021, and I began worship ministry exactly on Easter of 2022. And it's been an honor to serve in ministry with people I love again, and then also to know and serve in ministry with John and Adrian's children as well. That's a special treasure. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife, Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon. 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. This is God's word. Amen. Woo! Let's give it up for Kim. She's got a future career reading the Bible on those apps. There. <laughs> All scripture is God-breathed, yes? yes? Including the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. We, uh, we sing and we pray to God and God speaks to us through his word. The Bible is the supreme authoritative source of God's revelation 
to humankind. Experience and personal feelings, uh, traditions, science, philosophy, medicine, current cultural norms, these, these all have something to say, yes? But they are all must submit to the ultimate authority of God's word. My friends, we are going to be a people of the word, a people of the Bible, and, and I know for many of you, you have been for years dedicated to reading God's word and searching it, and I want us collectively to learn from one another and to learn from the scripture to become Bible people, to be shaped by the word, to be stirred up by the word, to be saturated in the word, and to become students of the word. You guys ready to nerd out on the word a little bit this morning? I was thinking about getting those little hats with the the propellers on top and distributing for everyone this morning, but Becky's look says that was a bad idea. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Today we begin our journey through the book of Matthew, Um, and we're going to spend the next eight weeks working our way through just the first few chapters of Matthew. And after that, for all the type A's in the room who need to know where we're going, July 4th, we're going to take a break from this series and we're going to go over and we're going to look at a a sermon uh, entitled Citizens in Exile as we consider what it means to be citizens of the kingdom in a country celebrating our independence and how we ought to live in light of that. And then we're going to hop over for four weeks to the Psalms and we're going to go through a series called A Pilgrim's Song looking at the four songs, psalms of ascent, the psalms of going up to the temple, preparing our hearts to, to be in the presence of God. And then after that four weeks, we're gonna hop over to Jonah. Book of Jonah, amen? Yeah, one person excited about that. <laughs> for, for a series called The Prodigal Prophet. And then Labor Day, we'll talk about... Uh, well, a sermon titled, My Worth is Not in What I Own, as we consider all of our labor and striving for what. And then finally, we'll be back in Matthew for another eight weeks, and then we'll just keep going, and like I say, uh, we'll keep re- revisiting Matthew until we get all the way through. So let's dive headlong in there. Now you got the roadmap for the next, well, whatever, decade. <laughs> Here we go. So what's the big picture with Matthew? Uh, how, how do we summarize the book of Matthew as a whole Well, Matthew is a gospel account. So gospel, meaning good news. It's a good news account, a proclamation, a a declaration, account of the life, the teaching, the death and resurrection. Life, teaching, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Matthew in particular emphasizes his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and his teachings on the kingdom of God. The original audience uh, who Matthew was writing to and who he was trying to benefit and communicate to uh, were early Jewish believers in Jewish community. And even some, probably some non-believers in Christ, but Jews nonetheless. Uh, It was written to help them see that Jesus is not just a part of Israel's history, but that Jesus, that all of Israel's history, Jesus himself is, the ancestors of Israel's history is dependent upon Jesus himself to have any meaning whatsoever. Their existence, their journey throughout time and what we just read in the genealogy is only filled with cosmic meaning or eternal meaning because it lands 
on Jesus. That's one of the important figures or features of today's scripture, the genealogy. In the Old Testament, usually when you had a genealogy, it would list a person's descendants after this moment. So John begat Gabe. Gabe begat no one because he's 17 and not married. <laughs> yeah, hopefully one day he will be married. And, but you see, it would go from me down through my generations. This genealogy is different, isn't it? It begins backward and lands on Jesus. And you can tell that even in the significance, you feel the weight of it as it comes to the Messiah. That while it may have begun with Abraham, Jesus was the point of it, where it landed. And that's significant. That's significant in the difference, and that's why he lists out the ancestors going back. Jesus is the focal point of Israel's history. God sovereignly directs the history of Israel and preserved David's line because of his plan to send Jesus. So who was Matthew before he met Jesus? Who was this guy who would take the time to gather these stories and collect all of the accounts and bring them together in this book? Well, we're told in the word that he was a tax collector. His story is recorded in chapter nine of Matthew and it says that Jesus went out from there and he saw a man named Matthew and he was sitting at the tax booth or in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. In the same chapter, it says that Jesus was reclining at a table, having a meal, and many tax collectors and sinners were gathered around, eating with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And so Matthew, Matthew's occupation, a tax collector, before meeting Jesus, he was a social outcast, but not the kind of social outcast, like, oh, they're just different or weird, right? And people are actually being uh, prejudiced against them. No, the kind of social outcast where they, they rightfully <laughs> earned their title. Rightfully. They were lawbreakers. They extorted their own people. They were frauds. Now, to a Jew, a tax collector was someone who had betrayed the community of faith, they had betrayed their own people because when Rome had come in, Rome, they worked for Rome. They worked for the bad guys, the occupiers, the, the occupying nation of the New Testament era. And the way it kind of worked was wealthy Jews, they could bid with Rome to become the tax collector. So they bid on the opportunity to become the tax collector and Rome would say to them, all right, well, you need to collect this much taxes from the people in your district. And, they, and then they could add on top of that whatever they wanted. And they often did. They were known for lying. They could collect whatever was required. They could add a fee on top of that. They could pocket the difference. There was another kind of subclass of tax collectors called publicans, not Republicans, publicans. <laughs> and they had a similar role, but they would focus their collections on imports and exports, things that were coming in and out of the city, and they would tax those and add on top of that their fees. Maybe Repub Republicans? No, I don't know. Not Republicans, no. 
Tax collectors were known for lying about what was owed and pocketing the difference. And there's another story of a tax collector, probably a more famous story, at least with the kids. Zacchaeus, right? What do we know about Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. (laughs) And a tax collector, nonetheless. He was a tax collector. He was called a chief tax collector in the town Jericho. And the chief tax collector means that he probably had underlings that would go and do his bidding and he'd pay them a little bit and they could, they could skim off a little off the top. But nonetheless, unless he was a tax collector, uh, a short man who tried to catch a glimpse of this miracle worker who was coming into town. He wanted to see what was up with this Jesus guy. Jesus sees him, it says, and Jesus looks at him and what does Jesus say? He says, it is necessary that I stay at your house. And what is Matthew's response to that? Matthew's response, it's so earth shattering to Zacchaeus that he would be acknowledged by this teacher, this righteous man, and that he would be called to open up his unclean home to receive this righteous man. He's so blown away by it. What does he say? Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay it back four times as much. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And that gives you a little view into Matthew and what his conversion might have been like. A tax collector, an outcast, one who merited the status And one who Jesus comes along and sees in the tax booth and says, come, follow me. And Matthew went. Matthew is so compelled that he walks away from what is presumably a very lucrative operation going on. And his world is turned upside down as he begins to follow Jesus. In the Gospels of Mark and Luke, he's called Levi, we get another name for Matthew, Matthew or Levi. Um, and that's either because he was from the tribe of Levi or because, as is, happens in the New Testament a few places, we get both their Hebrew name and their Greek name. And it would make sense why we would know his Greek name since he was in cahoots with Rome and that's what he would have been known by uh, in, with the, the Romans for sure. Who is this Matthew? He's one of the 12 disciples. He's one of the apostles. He's an eyewitness of Jesus' life. He's an eyewitness of his teachings and his death and his resurrection and ascension. He's also, he was also there in the upper room when the Holy Spirit descended and the church was born on the day of Pentecost. And he played a major part in the spread of this Jesus movement outward to the ends of the earth and particularly the part that he played was the collections of stories and the teachings of Jesus that he all arranged in this beautiful gospel called Matthew. According to Matthew, uh, around, uh, Matthew was written, according to scholars, around 35 to 45 years after Jesus' ascension. There's some debate on an early date, a late date, but it's right in that time frame. 35 to 45 years after Jesus went to heaven or ascended before their eyes. And, and where does Matthew begin? If you're gonna begin the story, you wanna begin somewhere profound, right? And as I said, it's not just the gospel according to him that lays out his life and his death and his teachings and resurrection, but it also wants to highlight throughout the story that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. 
And to get started, he begins with a genealogy. And, and literally, the, the opening verse could read, the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Or it's the same word that in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used in place of in the beginning God created. It's a genesis, a beginning. And we know this genesis to be the beginning of a new covenant in Christ's blood. So why a genealogy? What, what, what's significant about this particular one that Kim read for us? We're gonna spend some time uh, over the next few minutes just kind of flying over it and we'll dip in and out of it to kind of grab some things uh, as we go along as good Bible students, right? We're good Bible students. And one thing that we're gonna look out for is the biblical writer's economy of words, how they use words. And what I mean by that is uh, look for the details. If they're rolling along and everything seems, oh, I get that, and then a detail is interjected, that's for a reason. They have an economy of words, that every word is valuable. And they also do it in the flip too. If you're ever reading along and you expect to find something and it's not there, that's an important note too. I expected to find something there and it wasn't present. And it's all intended to get us to ask questions like, why is it that way? Get us to begin to meditate and dive deep into the word. Each word is chosen in order to communicate something very specific. So as we work through the genealogy, you're gonna actually see that. Uh, Kim pointed out some of the highlights. We'll definitely hit on those and hopefully we'll find some other nuggets in there too. But it begins with the genealogy or the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Some have mistaken Jesus Christ to mean Jesus's proper name, Mr. Christ. Jesus, Mr. Christ. <laughs> That is not the case. Christ is not his last name. Jesus is his first name, and Christ is a title. Christ is a title, and we tend to think of titles coming before names, but at this point in time, the title's coming after the name. Christ is after, and it's a title. And what does Christ mean? Well, it's the Greek word that means anointed one. It means anointed one. And the Greek word that is used to translate the very important uh, the Hebrew word which we get the word Messiah from. So when you see, anywhere you see throughout the New Testament, if you're reading along, you say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, you can read it in your mind, Jesus Messiah. Jesus Messiah or Messiah Jesus. And that's important because Messiah is a loaded title, loaded throughout the Bible. And in fact, we did a, like an eight week long study uh, in our midweek class led by Nick and Brad, uh, not too long ago, where we looked at Messiah in great detail and probably didn't even scratch the surface. It's a theme throughout the Old Testament of this Messiah figure, this anointed one figure that we see pop up in different stories. And we're gonna fill out the meaning behind Messiah a little bit more next week because some of those themes are developed a little bit more next week and we only have time today to focus on the genealogy. But Matthew begins by saying that Israel's history and Israel's ancestry is a story that leads to and lands on Messiah. And that Messiah is named Jesus. And Jesus means the Lord saves. And so his anointed one, the Christ, will save his people. And that's important. Not only for them, but for us. Because as we 
flesh out what this means, who his people are and who this faith is and who it belongs to or is within reach of is all of us. Next thing we'll notice in that genealogy, if you have that scripture in front of you, is that there are two important figures that are singled out, David and Abraham. And those who've been in Sunday school or around church long enough probably have plenty of stories from both of their lives and can think of them off the top of your head. Hopefully they haven't been sanitized too much because when you get into it, they're really weird and crazy and not all that great. These two figures in Israel's history had profound meaning to the Jews. And in fact, God made a covenant with each of them. And so let's look at what those two covenants were because this goes directly to who this Messiah is and what he inherits. With Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, before he changed his name to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a covenant. This is a commitment that the Lord makes with Abraham. It's a covenant of land. It's a covenant of a people and a vocation to be a blessing to all the nations. And if you look at that, the way that uh, Genesis 12 reads, there's a whole lot of God saying, I will. I will. And that's because this is an unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant or a unilateral covenant is an agreement between two parties, but only one of the two parties has something to do. Agreement between two parties, but only one has something to do. Nothing is required of the other party. And we're told in verse one of Matthew one that Jesus is the rightful heir, the son of Abraham, to the covenant blessing that God gave Abraham in in, uh, Genesis chapter 12. And that leads to the covenant that he made with David. So the covenant with Abraham is one of uh, of land, a place of a people who will be God's people and of a vocation to be a blessing to all nations. What was the covenant that God made with, with David? It was also unconditional. God tells David that the Lord himself will make a house for David. That he will raise up a descendant of David's and will establish his kingdom. And he says, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. It will be an everlasting kingdom. And to the Jewish mind, David was the ultimate king. David was uh, defeating all of the Lord's enemies. What's, What's the main story that we all think of David? Goliath, right? David and Goliath going out and slaying this giant who stands against the armies of the Lord. How dare he? And he becomes this hero uh, of, the, of the, uh, the kingdom of Israel. And to the, the Jewish mind, David is the ultimate. He's established and unified a nation. He's build, built a city and he's brought the Ark of the Covenant so that God's presence will dwell among his people. What do we know of David's son? Who's next? Solomon. And what do we know of Solomon? 
wise man and stupid. <laughs> Very wise. Starts off looking great until the idol worship starts to happen. Until the foreign wives and concubines and the neglecting of God, the building of high places and the neglecting of God's word. So this everlasting kingdom, this promise to David was not fulfilled with Solomon. In fact, it got worse and it continued to get worse, a lot worse. We see that even in the genealogy. Once David was gone, all the people could think of was when will we have another David? When the cries that we see throughout the scripture and throughout the prophecies for a Messiah often make reference to the house of David, to David and his throne. When will we have another David? When will we have a true anointed one rise up? And this thinking plays right into that theme of Messiah. But it's primarily about the idea of a rightful ruler and a rightful authority over God's people in God's place. Jesus says, uh, or Matthew says that uh, there at the, in that, that beginning when it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is saying to us that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David and to the Davidic covenant for this everlasting kingdom and ruler. Well, one thing we can't talk about a whole lot is that sec- the last list. There were three, three kind of parts of the list. There's the last list that starts with uh, Zerubbabel and uh, other ones on that list. Well, once you get past those guys, we don't have any record of who they are. We don't know anything about them. We don't have any clue who they were because All they were, at least to us, was dot, 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 Messiah. And they represented that God was carrying on to land us at Messiah. Now, some have speculated that the the list in Matthew, the genealogy in Matthew, is unique because what Matthew has done is he's traced the rightful heir to the throne. So these aren't direct relatives necessarily of, of, uh, Jesus, of uh, Jesus and Joseph, but these are those who had the throne continued after exile, after being brought back from exile and been reestablished. It would have passed from this person to this person to this person and landed at Joseph. And so he brings us into that royal line that leads back. It's huge. Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne and Jesus is the rightful heir to the Abrahamic covenant of blessing and to be a blessing to all the nations. And history has shown us with absolute clarity that kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there is a throne upon which a king sits eternal. Uh, We are on the cusp of 2024. And I don't know about you, but that gets me a little anxious. Political season 2024 gets ugly. People stop, you know, answering calls. They stop getting invites to homes. Relationships start fracturing. Everyone's suspicious about who's on what side of what issue or person. We're coming up on that. And what's crazy is we went through it. And look at we went through that, some of you guys have gone through that year after year for many decades. 
And those people are all gone. Gone. Like dust. Like a smoke. Kings and kingdoms and rulers rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall. Nations come and go. We're in search of a king and a kingdom that never fails. An everlasting king. This genealogy launches in by saying, it's coming. Like the message is on the way. The word is on the way. The word is on. The the genealogy is a delivery system. See how it gets from here to here with the culmination of Jesus. If we scan down those verses, the next thing that jumps out is, oh, okay, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah, and his brothers. See how it added that on? That's to cue us Bible students to go, oh, why is, why is that one different than the one before? And his brothers. Well, who, who were, who were J, uh, Judah's brothers? They, they represented the heads of the family of the tribes of Israel. And so by branching out, he's speaking to the Jews at this time, and he's saying, look, it covers the whole family. This is through that family, that family line that encompasses all of our people. Judah alongside of his brothers. And as Kimberly pointed out, that this, it also shows that it's through the line of Judah and not any of the other brothers that he has chosen. And that's important if you have the time to go back and look at the blessings on the different brothers. Because Judah was promised it would come through Judah. And God was faithful to his promise. Now, uh, earlier I said that the covenant of God had made with Abraham and with David was unconditional, right? It was an agreement between parties, but only one had something to do in the agreement. And the truth is, that's really, really good. (laughs) Because if you know much about this genealogy and what it's already queued up for us, and it's about to double down on as we move forward through it in the next few minutes and then close up, then you know that things get really crazy with this family tree. Anyone here have a crooked family tree? You know what I mean? Yeah, a little crooked family tree, maybe some dead ends, maybe some hopovers, maybe some, some meldins, whatever it is, like we're a melting pot and crooked and going different directions. Well, the, starting in this genealogy, we, we run into some interesting characters. I mean, all of them are interesting, and, and we could talk about those all day long. But as you're running along, we run into some women that are in this genealogy. And women included in genealogies wasn't unheard of, but it wasn't normal. And so, as Bible students, we're, we're to t- pay attention. Why? Why, is there, why are they being referenced in this scripture? Uh, and we might think, well, if, if Matthew's simply retelling the history of Israel, then you would expect to see the matriarchs in there. You would expect to see Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and, and Rachel, right? Um, or, or if he was trying to create a prelude to Jesus' miraculous birth, you might see some of the women whose uh, wombs were opened up and through, through a miracle could give birth, Right? This would lead up and go, hey, see how it's like this? But that, that's not what we see at all. Instead, we get four women that are included in addition to Mary. And it begins with one named Tamar, or Tamar. Now, Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. 
So Judah marries Tamar off to her, his son. And his son marries her. And then the Lord gets mad at him because he's evil and he's killed. So now she's not married anymore, but she's his daughter-in-law. And so that goes from son number one that now the daughter needs to be married. She's a widow. So she needs the security and safety and obedience to the law to now be married to the second son. That story I'll let you guys read on your own. That one's weird. Genesis 38, if you want to kind of look into that. It's also probably not PG. So <laughs> That son gets killed because of his disobedience. And so Judah says, hey, why don't you go hang out with your father? Why don't you go back to your father? I've got another son, a third son, but he's too young right now. He's not ready to be married. When he's ready, we'll, we'll connect you guys, we'll make that happen. You go hang out with your father. Now, Tamar goes and hangs out with dad and realizes that she's being played by Judah. Judah has no intention whatsoever. And maybe rightfully so, because she's kind of like a black widow. Like, the sons keep going and dying <laughs> for whatever reason. And he's like, I don't want to send my youngest one over to her. So, well, we'll just let it be. So he's coming along, and he enters the town. Judah, this is later. He enters the town, and she, notices, she hears that he's coming. Tamar knows that Judah's coming. And so she takes off her widow's dress, and she puts on prostitute clothes. And she hangs out by the gate and waits for Judah to come in. And when Judah comes in, he goes right to her and says, hey, can I hire you? For a goat. I'll give you a goat. And she says, great. And they, yeah, and then they have what comes with that. And you have children from that, right? He doesn't have the goat with him, though. So he gives a couple of things in kind of like collateral, like uh, his staff and, and his cord and his, his emblem. And she takes those. He doesn't recognize who she is because of the way that she is dressed. She's covered. And so he goes through this whole process. He leaves. She gives birth. And then townspeople go to Judah and say, hey, Judah, Tamar over there, uh, she's, she's a prostitute. And she's pregnant now. And what does Judah say? Burn her to death. Burn her to death. And so they bring Tamar out. And he, he's there. And he's like, hey, you, know, you got to be executed because of your behavior. And she pulls out that stuff that he put on collateral and says, hey, does this belong to anyone? And Judah instantly knows, oh, oops. <laughs> that whole activity is how you get the next one in line, Perez. And that story is crazy because as Perez's brother, see, this is another one, that, why are there two names on that line, right? What is it, Perez and Zara, right? Perez and Zara, right? Uh, the, 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 uh, um, the kids of uh, Tamar. Tamar, yeah. As, as she's getting ready to give birth, she has, she's gonna have twins now from Judah in that whole weird thing. She's gonna have twins, and as it's coming out, the first one's coming out hand first, and so they tie a little red string around it to say, oh, there's the firstborn, right? Because it's gonna get all of the inheritance and, and the prestige of being the firstborn. And the second, born, born, the second one in the womb must grabbed and pulled it in or something because <laughs> he's like, nope, you're not going out and comes out first. And that's Perez. And that's listed right there in the genealogy of Jesus. That's, that's the story surrounding the birth 
of one of Jesus, uh, one of the ancestors of Joseph that leads to Jesus and is included in there. And what's interesting is that could have all been glossed over. Ancient stories and ancient storytellers were really good about directing you only to the feats and the feats of triumph and the things that made you look really good. That could have all been glossed over and you'd have no clue. But Matthew highlights it. And he says, if you're a good Bible student, then as I'm saying these names, you're gonna go, oh, that story. Oh, that thing over here, interesting. And it might lead you back to Genesis 38 to go, what, is, what, what am I supposed to get from that? And that, le- that leads us to Rahab, a prostitute. Uh, there's a theme here. <laughs> prostitute in Jericho, right? When the spies are coming and she helps the people the spies who are there. It says that she had heard what the Lord had done to the Egyptians when they were released from Egypt. She had heard how he had brought them out through the Red Sea and that she believed that God is the one in heaven and that God is the one on earth and would they remember her and her family when they come with the armies. And she's the only one that was spared in Jericho when the walls fell down. Prostitute. Joshua 2. Uriah's wife doesn't even get her name spelled out. She's just Uriah's wife. But you know who she implicates? King David. See, if you thought, oh, the women are introduced here to tell us, oh, these women are all the, the, bad, the bad ones in the story. No, no, no. The writer wants us to go back and go, hey, you know how you lifted David up? He was the ultimate king. He wasn't the ultimate king. There's one after who is more perfect. There's one after who is greater. Uriah was a man of honor. You guys know the story, right? Uriah was a man of honor, called back from the field after David had seen his wife on the roof bathing and asked, hey, have her come, see me. After committing adultery with her, she became pregnant. She said, I'm pregnant. And so David says, hey, have Uriah come back from the battlefield where David was supposed to be fighting because not only were the troops out there, but the ark of the presence of the Lord was out there. Remember, this is David who said, how lovely is your dwelling. I wanna be near to your tent. I wanna be near to your presence. He wasn't out where the ark of the covenant was. Instead, he was back in his palace hanging out. And he sees Bathsheba bathing. He commits adultery. Adultery, he's, he's, he's a powerful one in that. She's, she's being told what to do by the king. She comes. Or, or then he, when he realizes, oh crap, this is, gonna, <laughs> this is gonna get exposed here. Oh, oh no, we, we, have to, we have to figure out a way to cover over this. He invites, uh, well he invites, he tells uh, Joab to, to uh, call out to, um, yeah, Uriah to come back from the battlefield and to get him to sleep with his wife so that he can cover over this, uh, this sin that he's committed. And Uriah comes back and will not, will not go. He will not go home and find comfort at home while the troops in the ark are out in the field. And so he sleeps instead at the, the doorway of the, the palace. And David gets mad and he says, get that guy drunk. Get him drunk and then send him back to Bathsheba so that he can cover over my sin. And Uriah, even after drinking, refuses. And this time he sleeps with the servants. And David says, send him back to the field and tell Joab 
when you march out and the enemy's coming, withdraw your presence from around him, leave him out in the open field so that he can die. And he gets word back that he is dead. And we're to know that story surrounding this because in this, this, this genealogy, we don't find perfect people. This genealogy is not about us and our achievements, but it's about what God was doing in bringing Messiah Jesus to the earth to be the ultimate king and to be the one through whom the Abrahamic covenant of a place and a people with a vocation to bless the world comes. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah, Uriah's wife. There's another feature that unites them as well. Not just women. They're all Gentiles. Not one of them. To be included as a woman is significant. The fact that included in the genealogy and highlighted were Gentiles means that it baked into the cake in the plan that God had all along. This was not for some, just some special people but he was including along the way the Gentiles. I mean, if you really think about it, now we understand and we'll, we'll get into the divinity of Christ and, and his humanity. And this traces through Joseph. But in the sense of how genealogies work and how they lay out ancestry, this is a mixed race of people by the time you land at Joseph. These aren't pure blood sons of Abraham. This is all over the board. And probably worse than we know because there was lots of idolatry. Matthew invites us into the story of Jesus by assuring us of God's faithfulness to his people and to his promise. The story of God's people is not one of our own righteousness, but one of God's faithfulness. Seen more, most perfectly and completely in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focal point and the culmination of God's work through Israel. It frees us to be able to read even the Old Testament and not go, wow, that, that, I don't get it. That's for, the, that's for the Jewish people. That's for the, no. It was all aiming and moving us toward Messiah. Matthew also invites us all to look at our prejudice, uh, to see that the gospel is for the world, the good news of Jesus Christ is for the whole world that the people of God are called to embody and declare the gospel of Jesus Messiah to all nations and all peoples. There are no favorite children in the kingdom of God. No matter how messed up your family is, including you, you are invited into the story of Jesus. Just look at the genealogy. Just look at where he where it traces him back to Abraham. Jesus is the anointed one who saves, and we are grateful for that this morning. Will you will pray with me as we close? Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for Matthew and his faithfulness to write your words down, to gather, to assemble, and to lay out before us these truths. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, even through a genealogy, even through the compilation of some names as we seek to become better students of your word and to look deeply into it to find the significance and meaning and how it might apply to us today. We thank you, Lord, that if any of us are from messed up families, 
our messed up genealogies ourselves, that we can relate, we can see that, Lord, you were at work and you were powerful enough to make it happen even through the line of sinful, corrupt human beings. And from that line, we have Jesus, Messiah, the one who saves. He is our hope, not our righteousness. He is our hope, not our works, but yours alone. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.